on this fourth Sunday of Advent, a Sunday where we get the privilege of celebrating the love of God, let me start with two questions. Here's the first one. What did Adam say to Eve on the night before Christmas? Obvious. It's Christmas, Eve. Oh, the corny things that come across your computer screen, right? There we go. It takes Pat a while. But from Miss Carl and I, could we wish you the merriest of Christmases and pray that this coming Wednesday will just be grand. Now, here's the second question. It's a little more serious. Have you ever had Christmas compromised? Have you ever had a Christmas that just sort of went south? Maybe it was because, as a child, you had longed for that most special gift. This is Family Sunday. The kids are joining us today. And so maybe you can think back, if you're an adult, to that year where you so longed for the right gift and you just didn't get it, and it caused Christmas that year to be compromised. With Ashton's help, he put together some clips for me. See what you think. Nothing says Christmas, you know, like getting a limpy doll or toilet paper or a mower to help your dad. Anyway, have you ever received a gift that just wasn't quite the gift? You don't want to ever send Cecil Scott, my mother, to the store to buy athletic gear for Christmas because she has no clue about what that would look like. I asked for a nice basketball once for Christmas. You know, a good leather, Wilson, Spalding, whatever, that would be just perfect. And I got this rubber thing that when you bounce it, it goes to the third story of a building, you know? I could have been more successful with a beach ball in the, uh, you know, net than that. Anyway, have you had that kind of thing? Nothing says I love you more than snow tires, right, guys? You know, or how many blenders and salad shooters can you stand? Anyway, you've probably had a Christmas where you didn't get the right gift. Or maybe it was that you were in the Christmas pageant 
Raise your hand if you were ever in, as a kid, one of these things we have at church called Christmas pageants. Yeah, maybe you were Mary or Joseph or the donkey or something. Anyway, uh, we've been in these kinds of things, and uh, maybe the Christmas play just went belly up. It just didn't work out. Some of you remember the sitcom Home Improvement. Tim, the tool man, Taylor, his wife, Jill, the three boys, the wizened guy in the backyard named Wilson, and then there was the sidekick, Al Borland. Well, they go to a church Christmas pageant. One of the boys was in the pageant, and he, along with three other of his buddies, were to come out on the stage at just the right time and hold up various letters that spelled out what we sang about this morning, N-O-E-L, Noel. How hard can this be? The problem was the boys came on stage in the inverse order. And when they held up in that special moment of the play, those letters, Al leans over to Jill and says, who's Leon? (laughs) Anyway, maybe it was a Christmas play that this didn't go very well. Maybe it was a family meal setting that just got uncomfortable. Cousin Eddie showed up with his dog Snot, and it just wasn't comfortable. Or Uncle Harry starts just spewing out his views on politics and makes everybody at the table uncomfortable. I I read this week, uh, Chuck Terrell, Dr. Chuck Terrell, is a graduate of our school. He came to school as a non-traditional student and graduated, went on to preach in Kansas several years, his home church at one of those stints, and uh, now preaches down the road at Cassville, but he also taught at Manhattan Christian College for a while, and he's quite a writer, and he put together just some Christmas stories just called Uplifting Short Stories About Christmas, and uh, all of these are about Chuck except for one. There's one story by a guy named Vance James, who had the same tradition in his family, many of you have these kind of things, that they went to grandma's house for Christmas dinner. Normally in this setting, the kids were in one room and the parents were in the other. But grandpa and grandma had re, uh, you know, furbished the house. They had redesigned, and so everybody could be in the same room that year. One long table, and it just so happened that Vance James, as a little boy, was right across from Uncle Alfonso. Now, Uncle Alfonso was a little problematic because one of the ways he entertained the kids, which they only saw him once a year at Christmas time, was with his false teeth. This was a big game. So Vance James is across the table from Uncle Alfonso, at which point table grace is said, people begin to pass things. In front of Uncle Alfonso is this huge gravy boat that's overflowing with gravy. Pretty heavy, actually. Uncle Alfonso reaches to grab it and lift it. Man, this is heavy. So he kind of gets up and partially stands from his chair. And when he lifts it, his false teeth fall out into the gravy boat. Well, of course, Vance James starts to laugh and his mom quickly slaps her hands over his mouth. And one of the other ladies says, Uncle Alfonso, let me help you, and takes a few utensils and goes to fish the teeth out. He slaps her. Uncle Alf slaps her away and says, I'll get him myself. Anyway, he, so Uncle Alfonso takes his two fingers, dips into the gravy boat, finds his teeth, shakes them off, sticks them in his mouth, and says, that, boys, is how you eat gravy. Well, man. Sometimes Christmas can just get so, you know, compromised. 
And sometimes it's not funny, is it? Like when someone near and dear passes at Christmas. And we have at least two families in this church who have just experienced that. Christmas can get compromised. On Tuesday, it'll be 35 years. Christmas Eve day, when my father-in-law passed from this life. And, and there have been a few years of exception to this. But almost like clockwork, Miss Carla will get up at the exact moment that her daddy died 35 years ago. Almost every Christmas Eve, it happens. Christmas, let's face it, can get compromised. Which is why I came to teach from the Gospel of John today this truth. Christmas is compromised without transformation. If you don't let Jesus Christ transform you, it's not going to be a good Christmas in heaven because he so wants, and it is his birthday, he so wants for you to allow him to transform you. You know, if you've been here long, that as a church, we're in a study of the gospel of John. We won't be done with this till Easter, if Jesus tarries. But during these far five Sundays of, 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 of December, we're kind of walking through the formal introduction of the gospel of John, the first 18 verses, and we're kind of going slow. And so we've already suggested the theme that, of new beginnings for this month. That's a good month to emphasize that. New beginnings need a disturbance. Out of the silence came the word. The word disturbed the silence. New beginnings need an anchor. You gotta have something you can bank on and it's Jesus Christ as the light of life. Logan helped us with that two weeks ago. Last week, Cy talked about new beginnings need a forerunner and he talked to us about John the Baptist. Today, we come to verses nine through 13 of the first chapter. If you have your Bibles or your devices, It'll be on the screen, but you might want to follow along. And we want to suggest this as an idea, that new beginnings need a transformation. If, again, you don't let Jesus Christ transform your life, it's going to be a bummer of a Christmas in heaven. So we'll just look at it, verses 9 through 13. If it's okay with you, as we read the text, I'd like to give just a little commentary as we go down through it, okay? Okay. Now, I don't know what version this is going to come out in because I've memorized it in different ones. I have the ESV in front of me. That's what will be on the screen, but let's just get going, okay? Here's how verse 9 begins. The true light, that's enough. Let's stop right there. The true light. Logan was spot on two weeks ago when he said the light is Jesus. This is the sixth use by John of the word light. And the word light in the Bible sometimes means revelation. Sometimes it means understanding. Sometimes it means moral excellence. Here it's a term for Jesus. You'll notice it says there's an adjective, the true light. See, God intended Israel to be a light, but they didn't do real well at that. So we had to have the genuine article come along. In chapter 15, he's called the true vine. Israel was intended to be the vine, but 
They didn't grow good grapes. So the true light or the true vine, it says, was coming into the world. The true light that enlightens every person or gives light to everyone. Now, this may be just a little heavy, but you're up to this on Christmas Sunday. There are some of our religious friends that kind of are in what we would call the Reformed tradition. And if you don't understand that, that's all right. But they would emphasize this verse that that's what has to happen to you. You have to have somehow God performing a special work of enlightenment on your heart before you can respond to God. Well, I think there's some truth to that. Didn't Jesus teach in this very gospel in the upper room discourse in chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come? I don't suppose any of us in this room would have ever responded to God if we'd done somehow work on this a little bit before. I suppose there's some truth to that. And then this verse 9 has been called the Quaker verse of the Bible. Did you know that? It's been called the Quaker verse. Our Quaker friends, and that's a play on words, but our Quaker friends have, have look at it this way, that there has to be this illumination of the soul or the heart before you would even talk in church. And you know, there might be some truth to that. But I really think that probably the newer translations have probably captured this when they say, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's how John does Christmas. The true light that gives light was coming into the world. And then it says, he. He. <laughs> yeah, the true light's a he. He was in the world, but the world didn't know him. Well, how does this work? Well, you see, God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. And so he's already in the world, even according to Paul in Romans 1, what he has made. But why doesn't it seem more obvious to us? Well, because we're living on the other side of Genesis 3. And ever since we, as Shane Woodward put it, became united with death, uh, we just don't see his hand quite as readily as we used to. When the astronauts went up, into outer space, they read from Genesis 1 and 2. Do you remember this, some of you? When the cosmonauts went up, they said, we didn't see God. It all depends on your perspective. He was in the world, but the world didn't know. You're kidding me. The design didn't recognize the designer. The creature didn't recognize the creator. So it seems to be. And then you come to verse 11. And verse 11 is, according to Augustine in the early centuries of the church, the saddest verse in the Bible. He came to his own, and his own received him not. That's sad. Some versions, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Do you want me to go to Luke chapter 4 and show you his first rejection at Nazareth? Do you want me to go to John or Mark chapter 6 and show you his second rejection at Nazareth? He came to his own. It's one of the tragedies of the world. It's one of the tragedies of your life. It's one of the tragedies of Scripture. And his own did not receive him. But did you notice that right next to the saddest verse in the Bible is the gladdest verse in the Bible? But to all who received him, is that you? Amen. Okay, that would be when you respond. So let me give you your line. When I say, is that you? You say, oh yeah, is that you? But to all who received him, he gave the right, 
That word is the Greek word exousia. It means the power to act, the right to command. It's the word for authority. He gave the right to become children of God. Can you tell me what could be more identifying of your identity than that? Just one of God's kids. And then he tells us how. These, these, these children were born of God. What does he say? Not by flesh, not by, you know, the desires or the will of man, but born of God. It's quite a little paragraph. Can I do this today with you? As we look at these verses, could I invert the passage? Could, could I preach it from the bottom part and go to the top part? And if maybe it would help you to follow this structure, let's think of it along these lines. The first heading of this message will be A, dot, 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 B. The second heading will be B, dot, 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 C. The third heading will be C, dot, 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 D. In other words, I'm going to pick up the last line of the first heading and use it as the first line of the second and et cetera. Does this make sense? So let's start in verse 13. And let's say it this way. Transformation demands being born of God. Transformation demands being born of God. We're born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of the desires of people, not intentional intimacy. No, no, no. We are born of God. And I need to tell you something about John. John often uses language as a, at a higher level. I can only find one time, maybe I'm mistaken, maybe I missed something in the concordance, I can only find one time where John uses the word born to talk about physical birth. When the disciples and Jesus were walking along one day, they saw a blind guy and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That obviously is talking about his physical birth. But pretty much every other time John uses born, he means spiritual birth. Uh, for instance, in chapter 3, you remember Nick at night? In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus read him like he reads you and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. That's what Nicodemus really wanted. And he said, how, how, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is about spiritual stuff. A while back as a church, we studied the book of 1 John. And 1 John uses this language the same way, same author. So this idea of born, in 1 John 3, 9, in 1 John 5, 18, it says if you're born of God, you quit practicing sin. Is that true? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, if you're born of God, you love other people. Is that true? In 1 John 5, 1, it says, if you're born of God, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Is that true? So, so what does it mean to be born? The, the best Christmas you could give him this year would be to be born again. And in the book of Acts, you know how they did that? over and over and over again. They heard the message. They believed it. They repented of their sins. They confessed Jesus as Lord, and they were baptized into Christ and lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they did. Over and over. That's being born of God. We call it Christian conversion. So this week, 
One of the things that came across the computer screen was Bob Russell's blog. I read it every week. The former senior pastor of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And he quoted a piece that I had read years ago in Guidepost Magazine. Raise your hand if you remember Guidepost Magazine. Yeah. And so this was the story of Paul Harvey. Now, some of you older ones are going to have to tell the young ones who in the world that is. But do you remember this story? Listen to this. Several decades ago, on a trip through Arizona, Harvey and his wife stopped to worship in a small country church where just a handful of believers had gathered to hear the Word of God. That morning, the preacher announced that his subject was Christian baptism. Paul Harvey says he yawned and prepared to be bored to death. But he was unable to escape the simple eloquence of the country preacher, and that day he was led to a new understanding of what baptism meant. At the end of the message, he humbly and happily went down the aisle at invitation time and submitted himself to Christian baptism. And Paul Harvey later wrote this. These are his own words. The preacher said, there was nothing miraculous in the water, but when I descended into the depths and rose again, I knew something life-changing had happened to me. Afterward, I cried like a baby. The evolving joy this simple act has made in my life is so immense as to be indescribable. Since totally yielding to Christ through baptism, my heart can't stop singing. I've shaken off a lifetime habit of fretting over small things. A thousand little worries and apprehensions have simply evaporated. Also, perhaps because baptism is such a public act and because one's dignity gets drenched as well as one's body, I've discovered a new unself-consciousness in talking about my beliefs. And that, my friends, is the rest of the story. I'm telling you, the Bible calls you to be born again. And the best gift you could give to Christ this year, if you haven't been, is be born again so that he can start that wonderful transformation on you. Transformation demands being born of God. But being a born of God, if I can work my way backward at verse 12, being born of God requires believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus. Yeah, that's what he says. He says, but we, if we believe in him and receive him, then we will become children of God. A new sense of identity. This word in Greek, receive, means to take to oneself. When you receive this great Christmas gift, that's exactly what you do. You trust him for salvation. You commit yourself to this idea of belief, which leads you in the direction of a baptismal commitment. Here at this church, you just witnessed it a little bit ago. We practice baptism by immersion because we think that's what the Bible says. We practice what we call believer's baptism because if you don't believe anything, you're just getting wet. So there has to be faith that demonstrates itself in this. And when this takes place, you become a child of God. Listen, I don't know anything more defining in reality than knowing that you're one of God's kids. That affects everything. I, uh, I, my dear friend, J.K. Jones, says that he spent his first 40 years as a child trying to become an adult. He said, I think I'm going to spend my last 40 years as an adult trying to become a child again. So in Chuck Terrell's little book that I mentioned to you earlier, he had this little story. I won't read it all. It's just called A Kingdom 
in a crash, a kingdom in a crash. The three-year-old girl jumped up and down in excitement as she exclaimed to her mother, God is just my size. Mom, God's my size. She got the idea while lying on her stomach, gazing intently at the nativity scene beneath the Christmas tree. Listen to this next line. Eye level with a baby is a good position from which to contemplate theology. That will preach. Adults might look at the child and say, this can't be the Christ. It's just another bawling baby. This can't be God. This baby's Jewish. This can't be God. This baby's poor. This can't be God. This baby's illegitimate. This can't be God. This baby... But a child can look at the infant Jesus lying in the manger and say, God is my size. And there's more to the story, but the last line is, there's a whole kingdom in a crash. You see, believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus creates this born-again experience. But I need to move back to verse 9 and 10 and 11 and remind us of this. Not believing in Jesus and not receiving Jesus compromises Christmas. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own received him not. It almost looks like, God, couldn't you have done a better job? I mean, you're the designer. We don't recognize you. You're the creator. We don't recognize. It reminded me of a passage from the gospel prophet Isaiah when he said in his first chapter, Hear, O heavens, and give give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You see, Christmas gets compromised if we don't embrace this. Let me ask another question. How well do you handle rejection? Now, some of you real tough-skinned people out there, you'd say, oh, it doesn't bother me. It's a compliment. I just let it run like water off a duck. You're, a, you're in church. Don't lie. Some of you have it to acute degrees, but most everybody in this room doesn't like rejection. I got news for you on Christmas Sunday. God doesn't either. And he went to a lot of trouble and a lot of love to make sure he wouldn't be rejected. Christmas is going to get compromised if we don't let him do his transforming work. We sing this time of year, joy to the world. What's the second lyric? Let earth receive her king. So there was a British poet and theologian by the name of G.K. Chesterton. Brilliant man. But a little absent-minded In fact, as the years rolled on, he was rather notorious for getting lost. And sometimes he'd have to telegraph. Just kids, pretend it's kind of an ancient form of texting. 
he had to telegraph his wife. Once he telegraphed and he said, honey, I seem to be lost. I'm at the corner of Market Harborough. Where ought I to be? And as only a spouse could do, his wife texted or telegraphed one word back, and it was, home. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to be home. You, you are home, aren't you? He came to be with us so we could be with him. Home. We started the message by saying, you ever had Christmas go south? Let me, let me invert it. Let me invert it. What's the best one you ever remember? Was it really when you got just the right gift? When my parents got those skis, snow skis for me that were used, but I knew they couldn't afford them. When the, de- the meal was just delicious. When nobody got upset. When the relatives knew their exit strategy. When everything, no, no. That's not the best Christmas. The best Christmas is when the true light came into your world. We have much more in the service, but afterwards, I'll just hang around down here, and if you want to talk about baptism, the new birth, receiving Christ, trusting Christ, believing in Him, and what it means to be a child of God. Don't leave Christmas Sunday at church and not talk. Oh God in heaven, thank you for moving into our neighborhood. And thank you, Lord, that you provided a way by which we can be changed, transformed in the power of the Christmas event. Now, Lord, open our souls and our hearts to your transforming power, we pray in Christ's name.